Welcome to the Sum of It All Unlearning Podcast. I'm Audrey Mendeville, along with my colleague Mark Alcorn from the San Diego County Office of Education. And this season, we're diving into the book Unlearning, Changing Your Beliefs and Your Classroom with UDL by Allison Posey and Katie Novak. Transcripts to our podcast are always available for you in the episode notes on your favorite platform. This week, we're diving into Chapter 2, The UDL Road Trip. And the, <laughs> that's a fun one, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, let's go. <laughs> the premise of this chapter is, starts by sharing the stories of students who have transformed us and helped empower us to teach differently. And I love thinking about our teacher journeys through that lens, which is not how I usually think of my journey as a teacher. I usually mm. have kind of more of a historical timeline of things that happened in the universe. I definitely know that like in recent times, we all talk about before the pandemic or the shutdown or remote teaching and after, right? But what if instead we really talked about our teaching journey in light of like the names of students whose paths we crossed, who helped shape us into the teachers we were. Like I would have pre-Lamar and post-Lamar and, mm. you know, after, you know, what I knew before I met Luis and what I knew after Luis or before Carla and after wow. Carla. Did you, did you see what I'm saying? Like, that's a different image of my teacher journey um, and how I've grown and learned so much from the wonderful students who have taught me so much what, about what it means to be a teacher. Oh, yeah, Audrey. You know, my, my mind goes to the students that I didn't reach at that time and that the things that I end up having some incentive to get better at after that, um, I, I wish I could go back in time and, and give those students what they needed at that time. Um, you know, there's barriers that we put up without even realizing it, right? Yeah, totally. I, yeah, I appreciate that. I think we all have some of that, that um, hindsight and, and, and retrospective look on our careers and, and wishes that we could do things differently, which is where I think this chapter is a really interesting placement. They, um, the authors offer three students and a look into three students' lives. Um, and they're very, very different students from each other. They're not cookie cutters of each other by any means. And the authors state, we cannot imagine a system where these kids, and not even just these kids, but all kids, are not able to get what they need to learn, to grow, and to explore the limits, their own limits, um, and push past them. And it's really interesting to think about that um, because so often, um, and the authors go through this in the text, so often we get into the teaching career and we're like every single student, every single student, every single student, we're going to reach them all. And then something happens where we like level off, probably for our own sanity, for our own <laughs> self-wellness and, mm. you know, ability to survive, right. where we look at our our classroom practices and we become um, okay with it being good enough. Um, and they describe this as our classroom practices become automatic. The materials we use, the resources, the routines, everything seems good enough. And to the point of which um, we are almost okay with not reaching every kid. And um, which is weird to say. And yet I think it, when you speak to educators you have honest really heartfelt conversations we can all recognize a time when we were like yeah it's really uncomfortable to say it but yeah I, I can name points in my career where 
where I did have to essentially say I was okay with not reaching mm. every child. And I had to think of excuses in my brain to make sense of that. Mm. Um, and even so, even, you know, maybe less than that, maybe in a, a space that feels more normal to talk about is that in math, um, it might feel really satisfying as the authors describe to have every student in the class working on the mm. same math problem at the same <laughs> time. Like they use this as an example. Yeah. Um, and it can feel super empowering to deliver an engaging lecture. Like there's nothing like telling a story to kids and having them like on the edge of their seats, like dying. What happened next? Teach right. it, right? Like mm -hmm. you, like you see them in movies. You're like, wow, wouldn't that be amazing? But like the reality is, is neither of those two circumstances, the math, same math problem for every student or the lecture that's super engaging is going to meet the needs of every student in the room. And we know that to be true because we know it's not by design to do so. Um, and so there's, there's a space there to kind of wrestle with, like, we know it's not best practice because we know our kids are not a mythical average cookie cutter kid. Like they give us some examples of kids and we know that to be true about them. And yet we kind of have these practices that are made for cookie cutter kids. Yeah. Yeah, we do. Yeah, and as you're talking, Audrey, it just it even made me reflect on like when we walk out the door of our classroom, how are we even reflecting if we feel like we had a successful experience with students? Yeah. I mean, you alluded to this idea of like everybody was on, you know, on task on the same problem at the same time. And I think many times I have to say, like, that would have been something like, you know, if somebody popped in and visited my class, yeah, that's what I want. Everybody on the same problem at the same time, quote unquote, on task versus this notion of a learning goal mm -hmm. and the authors mm -hmm. bring up this notion of of goals right because it's it's central to universal design for learning uh, in fact on page 19 the authors say for udl it is essential to really clarify the goal or central purpose of the learning experience and audrey there's something that's just really jumping out at me when it says central purpose of the learning experience. Mm -hmm. I, I just think that in mathematics, we have this wide variability about what people consider to be a goal for a specific math lesson. Yeah. Um, it is interesting that the, the language the, users, the authors use in this chapter as they mention goals with that idea of central purpose. And, you know, I have to say that the standards that I was asked to write up on the board at a point in my career did not usually speak to purpose <laughs> for my students for mathematics, you know, and, mm -hmm. and, you know, and then, then, you know, I, but I did the right thing. I put them in student language. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, and I'm not, I'm not obviously not bashing that practice, but like that didn't fix the problem. <laughs> Just right. The kids knew what I was talking about. That still didn't really drive their, their interest. Um, so if we want, if we expect curiosity and motivation for our students toward a particular goal, and for especially as UDL uh, guides the story, if we want them to monitor the progress, it seems like there needs to be a driving purpose for the students and for the teacher in a particular learning experience. Um, so like, I know that they mentioned the idea of students will be able to, you know, that, that nice little acronym we have um, is mentioned as one of the structures um, I, I also wonder if like things like that keep us tied to this traditional notion of goals, like the whole thing about writing the standards on the board um, versus dismantling 
statements that are more of a description of what students should do versus what they should learn and especially why they should learn it. Yeah, I I really appreciate your pushback here, Mark. I think, I really appreciate it. I think the authors are trying to dabble in this space and and there's some difficulty with it, with mathematics, because some of it, um, as you said, feels vastly different classroom to classroom, site to site, district to district. And you're right, standards as the learning goal are really, really difficult. They don't give a why to students. So super interesting enough, the authors went for the math in this chapter. Friends, like most UDL books do not, this chapter went for it. Um, and they said, what about the goal? Solve a linear inequality. Um, so let's unpack that a little bit. Thinking about why students should care, how they build their understanding, what are their options for them to show their understanding, like thinking of all those three UDL principles, right? Engagement, representation, action, expression, that might push you to rewrite it. And I think that's a really decent push. I think that's a good place to start. Um, but, but, <laughs> Like when you get to that, you have to ask yourself, what is it I'm really trying to help students learn or be able to do, right? And I think those right. might be maybe the, the more powerful questions. Mm -hmm. So the authors take the solve a linear inequality and they say, what if we amped it up? What if we rewrote it and we said, work as a team to solve a linear inequality problem? And I just got to admit, I think that's a tough rewrite for me. I, um, I think this goes back to what you and I have said several times that that this feels like a band-aid on the old i don't i have old is the best word i can come up with traditional, current practices yeah. traditional practices of how we teach math mm -hmm. right like instead of lecture we're gonna have you work collaboratively um okay like that's not awful but i don't know that that still tells my students why they should care about solving a linear inequality I don't think that engages students in thinking and doing math practices. Um, so like, could we have them thinking about what, how do you make sense of constraints by looking at linear inequalities? Like what, you know, like why, why are linear inequalities any different than linear equalities? Like what's the big deal there? Um, or maybe you ask students to look for and make use of structure to find solution to linear inequalities. Mm -hmm. um, maybe you do something about same and different, like I was saying for equations and inequalities. I don't know. There's like all kinds of spaces where you could use the math practices to say, I'm centering the, the mathematical thinking you're doing. That matters more to me than anything else. And in designing my lesson, I'm gonna give you options and opportunities for how you engage in the learning and how, right? like. All of that's going to come in the design, not necessarily stated in the goal. Like my goal is not for you to have um, the options. That's my personal goal as a teacher is to provide options instead of bar over barriers for you. Anyways, I said lots of stuff. What are you thinking, Mark? Yeah, I, I, I think that's great. I think, I think it's really good for us to think about like, where are we starting from what we expect all students to be able to do? And are we, are we talking about the thinking and reasoning being the main goal, or are we talking about kids doing something? And I, I think you you summarized that pretty well with that inequality example. And you also got into this idea of what the authors call roadblocks and barriers, this idea of anticipating barriers. I mean, 
you know, we were just talking about this idea of the barriers that could be students still like inequality. And I call it the so what test. Is mm -hmm. that going to pass the so what test, that math goal? Um, so on page 20, the authors have a quote that might be helpful for us to use as a frame for this next part of our conversation. And it, and it goes like this. With our destination in mind, how might we be able to better plan ahead to anticipate barriers or to avoid unnecessarily unnecessary obstacles and frustrations? Now, I found this to be a really important shift when I plan a math lesson, Audrey. Um, and I admit that I used to think that the task was the goal. I mean, I, I think that I, I don't know if I consciously decided that as I look back at my practice, though, I think I, I want all students to be able to solve this problem versus the idea of a learning goal. So when the learning is identified as the goal, it really changes how you think about the barriers. And in the previous example, when you change that goal and started inserting math practices, you're starting for, from something different that you want everybody to be going toward. And so that's also gonna think about how we think about the barriers to get to that learning versus the barriers to just getting done with solving inequality, right? Yeah, I think it's a super important point. Like there, you have the ability to think ahead about how to avoid the unnecessary barriers. Like they are not saying that you are not gonna encounter roadblocks, that they aren't still gonna pop up in the middle of your class, that there are things that you're still gonna be like, whoa, did not see that coming. But there are many things that if we take the time to think about it ahead of time, we can plan around them. And I think that's super powerful to think about that that place of change being in that planning moment. Yeah, yeah, for, for sure, Audrey. And um, just something else that I was just reminded about with goals. And, and also the authors say they're going to get into this more in chapter six. But yeah. Audrey... Uh, the author started the conversation around goals, so I, I think we can too, right? So just a little, a little bit more about goals. You know, I, I like talking about this topic. Um, so one other thing, and we've talked to our science colleagues about this a lot, is when to reveal the goal to mm -hmm. students is an interesting dilemma. Um, it's important for us to consider this because there's a common practice of displaying the goal for students, whether it's displayed visually or teachers reveal the goal by speaking to the students at the start of the lesson, the very, very moment you get up there and shift gears into that lesson. Um, and I think it's important for us to consider that sometimes in mathematics and science, if the goal has part of what we want students to learn, that may not be something that we want to reveal right at the get-go because that actually may take a lot of the air out of the balloon in the lesson because there won't be as much for students to inquire about, right? Totally, totally. And I I totally appreciate that, Mark. You know, um, there are times, like even when you think about using the SMPs, if I say I want you to use tools strategically as part of your lesson goal, and you tell students that ahead of time, then they're like on hyper alert, like I'm supposed to be using a tool for this, right? And is that is that good or bad? You know, like I think there's a time and a place for that, but is there always a time and place for that? Yeah. So even with the SMPs, I know you were talking more globally around mm -hmm. inquiry of content, but even yeah. I think with SMPs it gets a little bit a little bit fuzzy. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and and I think it's worth just pausing and recognizing like there are times when we have all in our careers known that there are rare barriers that exist in our classes. 
I knew every time I taught a first period math class that there was a barrier for high schoolers being first period in the morning. Mm -hmm. And I didn't do a heck of a lot to plan around that. Um, And maybe the equivalent for elementary teachers is teaching right after recess. And actually, Mm -hmm. I've seen some amazing things happen right after recess where teachers get the wiggles and jiggles out and they have a routine to like (laughs) get kids back into this like sphere of learning that I never even thought about what it meant to to start class first period in a different way than I started all the rest of my classes. So whatever warm up they got, whatever, woohoo, we're here, we're back. I I did it for everyone else. There was no different treatment. And yet they had a different scenario. It was the first thing of the day. They weren't, their brains were not in gear yet. You know what I mean? So like Uh we have Uh an awareness, we should do something about it. And then on the other end of the spectrum, sometimes I think we want to help so much to remove barriers that we actually end up creating barriers. So the tools one is a great example for me. I would want students to use tools so much that instead of saying like, here are the five tools to use, um, I like, like choose one, like I'd put them all there on their paper. And I like, I, there you can make a graph and a table and an equation like I'd put them all there and students would look at them and be like overwhelmed like there's like mm. at that point there's no choice there's like yeah. you want me to do all of this so <laughs> I think I think we have to like we have to keep working at that like sometimes we create the barriers ourselves and sometimes we don't acknowledge barriers that are pretty much like right in front of us so I think there's some space there for us to to plan around them as they talk about on our on our road trip we can think about avoiding them right right and doesn't it just go all the way go back to the goal again yeah and and that's where i just underutilize that as a teacher in the classroom is because if i can go back to that learning goal that might influence the tools decisions and all kinds of things like that so um well as we go a little further in this chapter audrey you know the authors start to kind of vision sort of kind of like where we could be headed with putting all this together right And there's just a really nice series of sentences or phrases on page 21. If you don't mind, I'll just, I'll read them for our listeners, because I think it's kind of one of those things that I think fits as a nice package. And here, here I go here. Um, What would it look like and feel like to have classrooms full of engaged students tackling rigorous course material because they understand why learning is so critical and they know that they have the options to challenge themselves and get support as necessary. With every goal you craft, ask yourselves and ask students, why does this matter? How is this relevant? What does success look like? And again, that's on page 21. Audrey, I just think this is a great series of thoughts. And it actually reminds me of the current work in mathematics here in, here in California, where we are, we are living. And as many of our listeners in California know, our state has just approved a revised mathematics framework for TK-12. And one of the recommendations in this revised framework is to use something that they call drivers of investigation to plan lessons. And so this is an effort for our students to engage in that why of the learning, to make sense of the world is the first one, to understand and explain. The second one is to predict what could happen. And that's around this idea of predicting. And the third one is around to impact the future, to affect that future. So uh, I think that by thinking of these three 
pieces, I could see Audrey as, as somebody might be writing a math goal. They might be thinking of these drivers of investigation. And it might be interesting as we move through this book to continue talking about goals and to think how this new focus on drivers of investigation in mathematics here in California and our continuing focus on SMPs might influence how we improve our ways of writing learning goals for mathematics. I think it's a great question. Um, to be fully transparent, I am learning a lot in this space. So I will likely look back on the fact that we are recording our voices on this <laughs> in three to six months and cringe at whatever is coming out of my mouth fair, in the next yeah, 10 seconds, yeah. which is which is good. It means we've learned and moved Oops. past that at some point. Um, but what I am thinking right now, based on what we've read, is that things like learning goals like learn the quadratic equation need to probably become obsolete. And I think the last framework was pushing us there. And I think this revised framework is definitely pushing us there. And it makes me think that that kind of a learning goal doesn't have why I should learn it, how I'm supposed to interact with it, um, it definitely makes me think that the way I'm going to be expected to show my learning is a whole bunch of problems where I use the quadratic formula um, or quadratic equation. Um, and none of that is is actually what mathematics looks like in our world, right? And so the space I'm playing with is instead, does that driver of investigation help us write that learning goal? Could it be something like, do all projectiles create similar arcs? Hmm. And is that something that then all of my learning becomes focused around? And in the in the learning of that, I have to learn some really important things about quadratic equations. I'm actually probably going to learn different forms and different points of interest and things that matter and how to graph them. And I'm going to talk about what similar means and doesn't mean. And I'm going to have to do some things. But when I think about what my learning is going to look like, my learning is going to be trying to answer that question, right? Like yeah. at the end, right? It's like, yeah. it's, it's giving yeah. me a goal. My goal yeah. is to answer the question and have some kind of information to back it up which I think is actually giving us tools, if I was in the student seat, tools that I could use in life. I'm engaged in thinking and reasoning. I'm engaged in the practices and I'm deeply engaged in acquiring content that's necessary for those skills. So I, again, I might look back in six months and cringe at everything I've just said. I might know more then, um, but that's where I'm thinking this is headed for us. And I gotta tell you, whenever we ask kiddos in classes, do all projectiles follow the same like path versus, hey, we're going to learn the quadratic equation today. Let me just tell you, there's a different <laughs> body language response that tells me they're engaged or not engaged, that they're expecting it's designed for them or it's designed for someone else. Does that like, I think there's something there. So I think there's space for us to play with that. Yeah. Yeah. Just that, that whole, that whole combination of curiosity and motivation and how those go together, um, I think is gonna be interesting to continue to think about as we think about goals and, and think about what appropriate goal that to drive the learning, that idea of that. That's why I like that, that drivers of investigation. I, I like the idea of, of thinking about it that way. Um, 
Well, as we go a little further in, into the chapter, Audrey, there is another quote that I just wanted to, um, I, 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 I think this is kind of going to be goals episode one, and then we'll have goals episode two. <laughs> it sort of seems to be where <laughs> we're three and four. Yes, as, yes. Because we're getting near the end of this one. And I think that's been a, a definitely strong topic that our, I, I, I still say our, our, our authors led us this direction. So I'm not saying we did this on our own. Okay. <laughs> so on page 22, uh, there is one other thing about goals that Audrey, I didn't want to leave without us uh, fin finishing up today is on 22, it says teachers break down standards and all the different subcomponents of a lesson and highlight goals more thoroughly. That did kind of jump out at me, Audrey, as something that I, I do want to somewhat challenge in the in the area of mathematics. Mm -hmm. um, I, I kind of just wonder if this is part of the problem in traditionally in teaching and learning mathematics is Traditionally, we've done this idea where we break down our standards into these very, very discrete pieces. And, you know, we make it really hard for our students to see a purpose in doing the work. And versus sort of like some of the work you and I've been doing the last couple of years is more around looking at what are these essential understandings, these big ideas. That's where we can find the space of, of, of connection and motivation and curiosity. And so I saw that idea of breaking into subcomponents and I, I got a little nervous. <laughs> to admit. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think with math, we might've gone too far the other direction, you know, and, and maybe it works in a lot of other content areas. I'm going to leave that for other people to speak to, but I definitely read some, some of the things they said about scaffolds and they said, you know, they should be removed over time, which I a hundred percent agree. If you have a scaffold, it's not supposed to be there forever. But then they mentioned that scaffolds for quadratic equations are calculators and modeling. And it's like, well, actually, those aren't scaffolds. Those are tools. Hmm. Um, and modeling is actually a SMP. That's actually something we learn to do. And it's a habit that we actually want to develop. So I think we just have to be careful about, again, what math are we talking about? We've talked yeah. about, we talked about it all last season, Mark, the entire season um, 11 was just like, are we all talking about the same uh, math when we talk yeah. about school math? And I think yeah. this is just a space where I see that that might be not super, we might not be on the same page as the authors and that's okay. Um, but I would caution readers, depending on where you are with your vision of what math, school math should look and sound like, uh, you might find some spaces to kind of, um, you know, pause, think about it a little more deeply. Yeah, yeah, for sure, Audrey. And, and just one final thought um, on page 23. Um, you know, the authors get us to, you know, and I, I appreciate the honesty and the, and the transparency with this. In page 23, our authors say, working with students to include options for engagement, representation and action, or excuse me, representation and action and expression that align with the goal is indeed time consuming. So the idea of like, even when we come up with a goal that we're really satisfied with and then going to look for those options um, that can can be time consuming, but uh, very, very important, and necessary. Um, I think that as I started thinking of those options in the in the in our content area of mathematics that we we talk about a lot and think about a lot, um, it made me think about like how. Um, we have more barriers in education as educators in doing this in mathematics, especially, I think that we just have ways, this is how we do business in math. Um, but then we say, oh, okay, we're going to mix it up. We're going to throw in a project. You know, like we might even start going down the route of, you know, I'm going to give lots of choices and opportunities. So I'm going to throw in a project. Um, 
But in the end, like it's sometimes just a dressed up way of getting the right answer anyway. So it it's because, you know, we haven't really made a fundamental shift in the way we're doing mathematics. So kind of back to your point, the UDL just sort of seems like we're dressing up sort of the old traditional way of doing things, but it looks a little more exciting maybe. You know, Mark, that is such a good point. I was working with a group of teachers two nights ago uh, and some of them got really frustrated when there wasn't an answer at the end of like the problem. And I was like, wait a second, you've talked about this is okay for students. Why isn't this okay for us? It's like, cause it sucks to not have an answer, right? right? We want that closure. And it's like, what does closure look like in the learning space so that you can close it off for now and understand that most mathematics you're going to solve as an adult are not going to be in like 25 minute, 45 minute increments. Like that's just, that yeah. just isn't how it happens. Um, so did you give them the people, answer? No, are you kidding me? Good I, don't you. Even, I don't even know if I know the answer, to be honest. I'm still right. working on it myself, which is the yeah. true thing to be doing with mathematics is saying yeah. like, I'm curious about this, aren't you? So yes. Good food for thought there. Yes. Um, rubrics came up. One last thing in this chapter for me was the rubrics came up one more time. And I know we've mentioned it in previous seasons, but it's mm -hmm. been a while. So I think it's worth mentioning again. Yeah. As a math teacher, I despised the rubric era. I thought there were so many words. It was so hard to grade between what it meant to usually do something and sometimes do something or kind of do something. And when I stumbled upon one point rubrics, um, Jennifer Gutierrez from the Cult of Pedagogy podcast and blog wrote about it. Um, that made sense to me finally. And I think it fits in really nicely with this conversation of goals. You paint it done. You say, this is what it looks like to get it done. And everything else is commentary. Like here's ways I saw you exemplify this part of the criteria and here are places where I think you could still improve. And for me, that transformed how you can grade things, especially when you delve into those fun projects like you were describing. So what a great chapter for us to chat about. I'm sure we have more to say. Oh, absolutely, Audrey. I enjoyed the conversation. Well, thanks for joining us for this episode. In our next episode, we will chat about chapter three, transform your tried and true techniques. Until then, what will you unlearn? <laughs>